Hello, I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. And my guest is Melita Ralston. She is a playwright that's been around Sydney Traps for a while. She actually hails from Melbourne and I should say before I go any further that I do know her and I have worked with her and I have seen her work over the years so it will be great to just dig a little deeper in because she has such a long list of works under her belt. Her plays include Cockroach which travelled the New Zealand Fringe, Adelaide Fringe, Melbourne Fringe, Sydney Fringe, Between the Streetlight and the Moon which was shortlisted for the 2016 Patrick White Award, Crushed, The Driver, Sugar Bomb. Look there's a whole heap there. I can't go through them all. She's got directing credits including Spunks by Rebel Wilson and assistant director to Barry Kosky and her latest work The Golden Drop is coming to Flight Path Theatre from next week from the 23rd of June and she's a playwright she's a director she's an artist she won a performance credit for the giant worm show in the Adelaide Fringe and she's here to talk with me about her life as a writer as a director as an artist of many talents and skills and what she's doing now so welcome to stages Melita thank you I'm blushing that was quite an intro (laughs) It's so good to have you on the show. First of all, I know you're from Melbourne. Are you from a kind of creative family? No. (laughs) No. I'm from a generation of people who kind of grew up in poverty and had to pull up their bootstraps and get on with life and get things done, left school early, didn't go to university until they were much older, until they were parents and uh, juggling children and basically just got the job that was available at the time as as most boomers did and built a house and a family together and that was their form of creativity at the time. When I look back on my ancestry, there there are people in there who were writers. Um, they're, they're all very Christian on my mum's side, but lots of writers writing about God and giving sermons and being very creative in that way. So I think maybe there's something there. Mum said they were also great storytellers, oral storytellers. And then on my dad's side, I do have an aunt who was in musical theatre and vaudeville in the 50s and TV. She actually did a TV show with Olivia Newton-John um, back in the day. And uh, so I guess the theatre and the love of performance has probably come from dad's side. So what drew you? Was it like finding out that or were you kind of attracted to it first? What do you think drew you to the creative, the artistic world? (laughs) I was a child of the 70s and my mum had written on a cork board, um, she'd pinned it up, uh, you are not here to train a puppy, you are here to raise a thinking, creative, questioning, curious human being. And that was her motto. So she kind of dedicated her life to raising us as creative individuals, as many people in the Gough Whitlam era did. So right from the get-go, I was painting on walls and windows in the house. I was drawing. I was encouraged to go and see films and creative events and cultural events, different cultures. And out of that, I guess, that joy and freedom and love of that era, I started painting very young. And then when I was at art school, I started painting sets at Melbourne. University Theatre Department 
And that's when really the world of theatre opened up to me and I was thrown together with people like Angus Serini, Lally Katz, Ben Ellis, and we were all telling our own stories and creating and putting on shows at La Mama and in these tiny theatres. And for me, when I saw other people telling stories with an Australian voice and also stories about women's experience, which basically I didn't see much of, which is why I started writing and, and seeking those stories out. So what is that connection between uh, the visual world, apart from just painting the sets, and, and, the, and the writing world or the, the stage world? I mean, I know they're both very visual, but what, you know, is it the creative process that transforms into a different medium or...? I really loved, I think, going to art school and going to very sterile galleries in uh, Flinders Lane and in Fitzroy and looking at toilet paper rolls stuck to the wall or someone doing a performance art piece where they just recorded the sound of planes taking off and we just stood in the gallery listening to the sound of planes (laughs) taking off. (laughs) It's like my gallery every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, now in the inner west. um, Ironically, Flight Path Theatre is where this show's on. Um, (laughs) I think when I fell upon, especially La Mama, this sense of communal sharing, this sense of energy, this feeling of a body, a physical breathing, smelling, obviously very smelly uh, sometimes, body in front of me and something unfolding in real time I found so magical and compelling. And as a child, we didn't go to much theatre because apparently my brother and I were very noisy (laughs) and a little, uh, what's the word, enthusiastic. So mum didn't take us to much theatre as kids. So I really discovered that at uni. And I think also to be able to have something that was written down a day before, performed live in front of an audience and to hear a response so quickly... um, I think that's what captured me. And, of course, the the visual writing, the poetry of writing, I just adored as well. So I guess how that's how the visual and the poetic and, and the imagery that you can um, make happen with words was was the connection there. So the performer and you were starting early at the theatres that you were watching. What brought you from Melbourne to Sydney and what was that leap and how are the worlds different? Yeah, well, I was at Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne, which is a very respected school, and that's where I did my painting degree. And then I started to do a master's in visual theatre, so combining the painting and theatre. Visual theatre? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did a thesis on Jenny Kemp's theatre production, The Black Sequin Dress, which melded Paul Delvaux, who was a Belgian surrealist, his visual art into onto stage through physical theatre. So she used his paintings as inspiration for how she moved bodies through space. Love it. Yeah, that was where I was heading and that's a very Melbourne style of theatre, I guess, to really work on a huge canvas and do it in that very European way. But at the time, everyone was going to NIDA. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everyone was talking about Sydney. And at the time, the Olympic Arts Festival was coming up. Uh, Fox Studios was opening up. And there were, at the time, a lot more theatres, paying theatres in Sydney. Um, I remember counting, I think there were seven versus the two in Melbourne, MTC and, and Playbox at the time. And and there just seemed to be, I wanted more. I wanted a bigger view of the world. Wanted to, um, I wanted to aim higher, and I guess that's what I why I went to NIDA and Sydney, and then I just fell in love with Sydney. I, I feel the sunshine. There's a bigger view of the world. It's an international city, and I just love parts of this city that you can't find anywhere else in the world. Obviously, the harbour, but also King's Cross and 
that old bohemian vibe that was was <laughs> so beautiful about King's Cross and I just stayed. What I know a lot of your work is is steeped in your research and like you said the forgotten stories of women especially when did that love of the historical part because you've gone from the visual to this sort of deeply researched history works yeah it's interesting I think the first show I did that I wrote was researching women's colonial diaries uh including Mm. my great 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 grandmother so she wasn't colonial but mid-1800s I think we've got all her diaries so she was the preacher I talked about earlier so I think it it was always there because again I had parents who (laughs) loved the Sunday drive and in the 70s taking us to all those historical theme parks which I did a show about (laughs) so I think that was always there but with painting I found it really difficult to tell a full historical story because paintings are very much about one idea one concept one image pattern and colour while with theatre you can actually really deep dive into history and tell big stories. So I think the love of history was always there and then it came out in the best form through writing and and theatre. So let's talk about The Golden Drop, which is one of those steeped in history. Tell me about where this sort of kernel of the idea started and and how it's come to life. Uh, Well, Pre-COVID, I was very lucky to be offered a apartment in uh, Montmartre in Paris. Um, a friend was moving to LA and the apartment was going to be empty for five weeks. And I did a rash thing, <laughs> which now post-COVID, I'm very glad I did. Uh, and I said, yes, why not? And I, I freelanced, so I kind of paused a lot of work projects and basically lived in this beautiful Montmartre apartment with views of the Sacré-Cœur out of every window. And part of that time was very specifically about immersing with the culture and looking for creative ideas and and treating it as a creative residency. And this is where that story came from. This woman, Jean Viber, she lived just over the border of Montmartre in the Golden Drop, La Goutte d'Or, and she uh, was infamous as a child murderer. So I, I got right into it. I went to every, she moved around a lot. I went to every site, murder site. I went to flea markets and went through endless boxes of newspaper articles and found old articles about her. I I read blogs, I talked to locals and got people to translate for me. And I just kind of immersed myself in what would have been the world of La Goutte d'Or in the late 1890s and early 1900s, which was a very, and still, it's still actually quite terrifying (laughs) walking around those streets. So I can't even imagine what it was like in the late 1890s, but just immersing in that world. And I guess on the bigger scale, I was very interested in the notion of why a woman would kill her child and other children. How many children did she? At least 10. And the last one, so the last one was 1906. The first one was 1894, which is where I've set. So I've just done the first one for this because it's obviously a short work. And I'd originally written all three of her children and then I'd done all the research into the others. And then Paul was like, yeah, you've got a 15, 15 minutes. Like, <laughs> So we just focused on the first one. But um, the last one in 1906, she was an alcoholic at this point and she was living in a boarding house in really out country and she was – remarried a third time and she begged the woman at the 
the boarding house they were living in to have her son, her eight-year-old son, also called Marcel, same name as her son, who she murdered, sleep in the bed with her because she was terrified that her husband was going to beat her. And the woman let her and then all these people who were staying in the hotel heard screaming and they had to bash down the bedroom door and the father found her. She'd ripped out the boy's tongue with her teeth. <gasps> Yeah, and she'd strangled him with a wet handkerchief and she, the father actually had to punch her in the face to so she'd let go of her grip around the eight-year-old boy that she murdered. And so then that one was proof. <laughs> and that's when she actually went to a lunatic asylum in the end. She didn't go to jail. How do you take something that is historical like that and turn it into a work of, for, for the, theatricalize it, I suppose? Is that a word? Theatricalize? Uh, <laughs> make it work for the stage? Uh, I think one reason why I, I chose this was I liked the historical distancing function because there are still, and it's actually on the increase, many women do actually murder their children now in contemporary society. And I did a lot of research into those cases to help build the character. What it also gave me theatrically was poetic license in terms of the language I used and the images I created. Originally, what she did do is try to commit suicide by jumping off the, the Bercy uh, Bridge on the Seine, the Seine. Sorry, I haven't polished my Parisian accent. <laughs> and uh, she nearly drowned, but her big voluminous dress caught her in a bit of an air bubble and she was dragged to safety. That was the original idea I had, like a kind of monologue where she was submerged in this mid-world uh, reflecting on what had happened. But as I started writing, it was a lot more active and she actually has a bit of a sense of humour, which I was surprised by. So now I've set her in her prison cell where she's awaiting trial and I sort of jump back and forth in time as she reflects on her life. And basically this really big question of child murder. So... What do you think the importance of telling these kind of, you know, forgotten social narratives and what they say about the world we live in? I think the importance of telling a forgotten narrative like this is that it actually, again, which is why I wanted to use the historical, really shines a light on something that is very real and happening right now. Uh, a lot of women have postpartum depression. A lot of women have um, thought patterns that terrify them when they have young children and they think it's something abnormal. They think they're at fault when actually on that part it's hormonal. And uh, also a lot of women are under a huge amount of pressure at that very important time of their lives. And what does society tell us? That motherhood is a joy, motherhood is natural and easy, that you will fall in love with your child as soon as you see your child, that everything you should intuitively and instinctively know how to be a mother. And what happens to those women who aren't feeling those things? And this whole kind of societal myth around mother love, that it's natural and pure and strong is really problematic for uh, all women, really, but for women who are not feeling those things, all of a sudden they're in a social isolation. And then if you couple that with poverty or domestic abuse, substance abuse or hormones, all of a sudden, oh, and I must also mention religion, um, all of a sudden you have a very dark and dangerous cocktail. And if those women don't find support or don't realise that these are all normal thoughts and feelings, it can go really wrong. So I think 
that's why I used the historical to shed light on something that's a very contemporary issue. Indeed, it's sort of one of the most to do something to a child that's so vulnerable is sort of up there with I don't know the the worst kind of crimes. Uh, so, what if did you research other stories in, in working on this? Yes. Uh, so Kathleen Kathleen I think or Kathleen Folbig is one woman who has actually come up again in the media recently. She was. Um, sent to prison for murdering three or four of her children. Uh, they, At the time it was put down to cot death or stillbirth, uh, not stillbirth, mm. cot death. I know there's a more mm. contemporary name for it. Um, and then, then, you know, her diaries were uncovered. She was expressing these very thoughts and a, a, uh, basically her husband turned against her and a case was built that she'd actually murdered these children. The, the jury's still out. She did try and get some more trials. I'm not using all the technical legal terms here, but mm-hmm. a, a group of scientists have come together to say that she actually, these children actually died due to a hereditary disease. Right. So she's a case that people in Australia were very, you know, obviously horrified by. And now to see that it might actually have been something to do with DNA and that she might have been in prison for a very long time while still having all those thoughts, but there's a difference between having a thought and, and doing an action. I really looked into her because they did publish a lot of her diaries. There are quite a few American women. Andrea Yates was where I kind of really looked into how religion plays a, a, a terrible role in this. She was very religious and had five children and she drowned them all in the bath, wow. ranging from a little young baby to a seven-year-old. She did them all at the one time because she felt that she had failed as a mother and that uh, because she so deeply believed in her God, she felt that her children were better off to be with God in heaven because she had failed as a mother and they were damaged beyond repair. Her case is also really fascinating and a lot of medical academics and psychologists have kind of analysed it. So that was a really interesting one to explore. She did have postpartum depression. She did have mental health conditions and they played a role in that. But religion was really key to why she took those actions. So, And there's a, there's a host more that I explored, especially with women who were writing down their thoughts or speaking their thoughts and they were recorded in police interviews to really try and get into that mindset of why this can happen. That is, wow. I, wow. What a, what a world you've been steeped in. Did you, was this part of a residency in the writing process for you when you got back to Sydney? Have you done kind of other residencies? Uh, not for this project. I did take myself away to the beach and locked myself up for a week and listened to these very disturbing stories and um, mm-hmm. went down to the beach and swam and cleared it all out every day. But um, <laughs> no, no, no other residencies for this one, of course, except being accepted into the Subtle Nuance program. Uh, Paul Gilchrist, my director, and the team, fantastic team of amazing writers. We all did uh, come together over a a good period of time and workshopped the works together and gave each other feedback. And people like Donna Abella and John A.D. Fraser and uh, Catherine Zimdahl, amazing writers were in the room and gave me such critical and supportive and creative feedback, as well as uh, Daniela Giorgi, the other director. And uh, that, I think, was a great hothouse experience to be in the room with those writers, to share our works with each other 
and to support each other, especially coming out of a COVID environment. And they're all part of this um, program as well? Absolutely. They're all exploring their own pernicious ideas and they're all big, big ideas. Donna did uh, a lot of work on the Royal Commission into child abuse and her piece is about that in in the priesthood. So we had a lot of similarities when exploring and developing the work. And uh, there's a whole lot of other very interesting ideas that society accepts as normal if you state them as statement, but when you actually unpack them, they can be very destructive, such as do what makes you happy. Mm. (laughs) If you think about that, we all say, you know, we've got all those memes, you you know, follow your heart, do what makes you happy, but what happens if you do what makes you happy? That's (laughs) the idea behind one of them. And another is that progress is good. Is progress good? That could be questioned as well as um, safety Mm. is number one. And I think if you live a safe life, sometimes you it is not exactly the best life you can live because we should all take risks. So, yeah, we were all discussing big ideas and it was really fun to be in the room, especially at the first reading, because we didn't know what the idea was. So there was quite a robust discussion unpacking each script and trying to sort of pinpoint and question and debate what the idea, the pernicious idea behind the script was. So what is that pernicious idea? For me... Yeah. A pernicious idea is that a mother's love is pure, unconditional and strong. And yet yours is very different. Tell me again the the motto that your mum had on the fridge about you not being a dog. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) You are raising a thinking, creative, I can't remember off by heart, uh, being not training a puppy. I just love it. Love it, love it, love it. On that note, I want to thank you so much for joining me this evening, Melita. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's Melita Ralston, writer, director, performer and artist. And her work, The Golden Drop, is on next week at the Flight Path Theatre under the umbrella of Morningstar. Star.